Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mouse and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is the final guest episode video this week featuring a smaller creator. I really hope that you've enjoyed all the videos that I've been posting this week and I hope you've enjoyed all of the smaller creators that I've been featuring this week. Today's creator is called Cicely Thomas. Now Cicely exists more on Instagram than anywhere else so I'll be plugging her Instagram today for you guys to go check her out and give her some support. Her Instagram is on screen now and in the top of the description and it is primarily makeup orientated. So be sure to go check her out. Today, Cicely wanted to cover a case that is close to her heart and close to where she lived and quite fresh in her memory still. So I hope you find the case interesting. I'm just going to give my usual disclaimer for this video. Uh, I'd just like to point out this video is not being made to disrespect or anything like that. It is just being made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Now, with all that being said, Let's delve right into this case. So today I'm going to be talking about the Colchester stabbings of 2014. This was quite a big case, it made the national news, um, but it's very local to me. So I'm really pleased to be able to cover it on Joshua's channel. Just want to add a quick little disclaimer that I mean absolutely no hurt, offence or harm to the families of the victims or the victims themselves. This is all information that I've gathered from the internet and I'm just putting it into one video to educate, to teach, to help and to spread awareness and I hope you enjoy. Okay, so James Atfield, who is better known as Jim to his friends and family, was a 33-year-old father of five who had been hit by a car in 2010 and suffered a brain injury following that accident. It caused his speech and reasoning to be affected and weakness on the left side of his body. In 2012, he moved to Colchester on his own to live in supported accommodation with the charity Headway Essex, who help people with brain injuries and the people who are struggling with that and recovering from them. At 5.30am on the 29th of March 2014, a woman was cycling to work in Lower Castle Park. Now, Castle Park is the kind of main park in Colchester, so it's like three fields there's a playground there's a castle obviously it's called castle park there's like loads of history there's a roman wall there's a pond like it's a big place and lower castle park is right by like our leisure center we've got mcdonald's there's a bowling alley and there's a river and there's a cycle path on a footpath just by the river and this woman came across jim lying on the path fighting for his life she immediately phoned the police and did her best to help him 
as he was still alive and fighting for his life, but he sadly died a short time later. It transpired that the police took 10 minutes to arrive and spent 45 minutes trying to revive Jim, but they sadly couldn't. He had been stabbed 102 times in what police called a savage and seemingly motiveless murder. There were knife wounds on his head, neck, hands, arms, legs, chest, back and in his eye as well as defensive wounds where he tried to protect himself. The stab wounds ranged from 13 centimetres deep to just superficial cuts. Once the police established this was a murder inquiry, which was pretty undeniable, they released CCTV and pictures of Jim, and three people were initially arrested, with a local flat being searched in connection to the murder. They also questioned 70 locals who had a history of knife crime, but couldn't hold anyone, which would become one of the most unfortunate parts of this case. By May 2014... There had been no new leads and a criminologist suggested that the police needed a lucky break with more details being released about Jim's journey on the Friday before he died. He had been at a local pub which was quite close to Castle Park until about 11 o'clock that night leaving his drink three quarters full which was very unlike him according to the pub owners. This left about six hours, seven hours unaccounted for and no one knew where he had been, whether he had been attacked as he left, whether he had just been walking home and got a bit lost and then got attacked. No one knew where he had been. So the police were also trying to piece together his movements from that night. However, there were no more leads after that. And on the 17th of June 2014, just a couple of months after James Atfield tragically died, Nahid Almania. I don't know if I'm saying that right, was found stabbed to death on the Salary Brook Trail by the University of Essex, where she was a student. Nahid was a 31-year-old Saudi Arabian university lecturer who had come to Colchester to study English a few months before she was killed. She had been stabbed six times in her eyes, which had gone through to her brain, her left breast, her back, her liver, her arms, her chest and her ribs. There were concerns among the police and among the locals that the attack had been racially motivated as she was wearing a Muslim abaya, which is like a long dress, and a hijab. There were also local fears that the two murders were linked as they were two horrific acts that were less than three months apart. A 52-year-old man was arrested in connection to Nahid's murder but quickly let go as there was very little evidence. The police also drained a nearby pond to try and find the murder weapon or any other evidence, but this was unsuccessful. The police called for the public to stay calm, stay vigilant and not go to large public open spaces when alone. I'm going to go into a bit of like my personal experience with this case because I remember it very clearly. And I went to an all-girls school and obviously no one knew who this murderer was and a lot of people around my area walked to and from school, so... You had hundreds of teenagers and young people walking alone with friends to and from school over fields, in woods, or they were waiting for buses which might not come and they might not have any friends with them. And it was a very nervous time and I've got a dog so my mum was quite often walking our dog to, like, she never wanted to walk without a friend or my dad and they would never go to this one place which was notorious for interesting things going on um because it was very wooded it was very 
it was an open space, but it was very closed. There were lots of secret part, not secret, but hidden parts of it where someone could be hiding, where someone could, you know, attack you and hide your body so you didn't get found. Like, it was a very anxious time for everyone. I remember people carrying rape alarms. I remember people carrying knives, like pen knives, not like knives. But, um, yeah, it was it was a really scary time. And there was a lot of fear, especially amongst the women, I think, because obviously as a woman, you're often told to, you know, protect yourself, not go near strangers. And, you know, I don't know about men, but I don't think they're told that as much. So I think with the added aspect that someone might literally be trying to kill you, because these attacks seem random. They happened at different times of the day. They happened very different people. No one knew if they were connected, of course, but they had happened so close together and they were so violent. There was always that suspicion and people were very scared. And it's honestly the biggest thing I can remember happening in my lifetime around here, let alone, I don't know what happened really before, but you know, we've had, we've never had something as big as this round here. And it was genuinely terrifying. I remember the police came into all the local schools and I, especially the comprehensives, a lot of them had those like knife bins outside and they had a lot of knife drops, which was terrifying when you see how many they collected. Anyway, back to the actual case. In July of 2014, the forensic work was begun to find the double murderer or the two separate murderers as the police could not be sure the two attacks were connected. There was also national news coverage with other police departments. I think there were some from the Midlands. There were definitely some from London, plus the Kent and Essex police departments and the special crime units stepping in to help. By September of 2014, the number of people who had been arrested in connection with these two murders had risen to 10 and their bail was extended into November when eight of them were released. In the January of 2015, the final two suspects were released from bail, but they kept investigating and they were still under suspicion. Since the first murder, and we're now in January of 2015, so nearly a year after the first murder, over 850 witness statements have been taken from people who have been in the area, although there appear to be no good leads. Nearly 150 knives have been seized or handed in to be forensically tested for evidence, but this also led to nothing. The year anniversary of Jim's murder came around with no new arrests and very little evidence until May the 29th, 2015, so almost a year after Nahid's murder when Michelle Sadler, a local hairdresser, was walking her dog along the Salary Brook Trail when Nahid had been stabbed to death. She saw 16-year-old James Fairweather looking out from a bridge and as she walked behind him, he turned to look at her and she saw pure evil in his eyes. She was going to call the police when she got to safely as she did not feel safe standing there, but a friend almost convinced her not to. Thankfully, they went back to the area and looked around for this 16-year-old boy who they didn't know, but they couldn't find him. They went over to, like, a bin, 
and looked around and then they saw him hiding, lurking in the bushes with a knife, staring at the two women. Michelle has said, he sat there and stared at me and then all I could think was, he's got the same style coat they're looking for in connection to the murders. Now the police have put out this picture of a kind of camel coloured coat, it had buttons, which they thought could be connected or being worn by the murderer as it had been picked up on CCTV of Nahid's murder. She made the choice to not phone 999 to ensure that the sirens, if the police came, didn't scare the boy off and instead called the UK's non-emergency number 101. Within three minutes, the police had arrived quietly and arrested 16-year-old James Fairweather. James Fairweather was 16 at the time of his arrest, making him only 15 years old when he committed the two horrific murders. He had previously been questioned by police shortly after James Atfield's murder, as he had committed a knife point robbery earlier that year and they were questioning people who had knife-related crimes. However, he was released without charge after managing to convince the officers of his innocence with an alibi. This is the most frustrating part of this case for me because they had the murderer. They had him. They had him before Nahid got murdered. Not that it makes it any easier that only one person would die because that's horrific and his poor family. But they could have saved someone's life. They had the murderer in questioning and... Because he had an alibi, they let him go. I just find that so frustrating. It makes me so angry. And I know it's not the police's fault. If he had an alibi and it was good and it was backed up, then they couldn't keep him. They weren't allowed to. But it's so frustrating that they had this murderer, this double murderer. He was a horrific murderer. And they let him go because he had an alibi for one morning when... No one else really would have been awake, but that's just my opinion. He was a student at the Colchester Academy, which is a not particularly well thought of school in the area. It's not the best. It's definitely got a lot better than it was, but it's not the best school. Um, and he was bullied there for his slightly big ears. Um... He had been involved in a couple of violent incidents at school, but none to suggest that he would become a violent murderer. More just like fights and normal lad stuff. Um, he was in the lowest sets at school, which means he wasn't the smartest. He was... In the UK, we've got sets at school, so you've got like top set, middle set, bottom set. He was in the bottom set for English, math, science, RE everything so he wasn't the smartest or maybe he was and he just didn't try but it didn't seem like he was the smartest of boys when he was asked to explain his desired career at school his classmates remember him saying murderer at his final assembly in year 11 he threatened a columbine style massacre of his classmates however his peers brushed this off as posturing and trying to seem cool and If that isn't a warning sign that someone's going to do something, saying that your desired career, your ultimate career path that you want is to be a murderer and then saying that you'll do 
a massacre at your school based on one of the most horrific and most prolific massacres at a school I don't know what is a like if that's not a warning sign I don't know what is but there was nothing done about this and it was never flagged up it was never you know brought up to him or his family they just thought nothing of it and that was it when he was arrested on the Salary Brook Trail, he was wearing rubber-gripped latex gloves and had a knife on his person and reportedly told police that he was going to get his third victim but there was no one around. When his house was later searched, as of course it was, documentaries and photos of Peter Sutcliffe, better known as the Yorkshire Ripper, and research of the Stockwell Strangler, Kenneth Erskine, Ipswich serial killer, Steve Wright and Ted Bundy were found in his possession. Which isn't to say that anyone who has an interest in true crime, serial killers, things like that are all going to go on to be murderers because that's simply not true. But given what he had done or they thought he had done at that time, it was definitely concerning, especially given how much there was about the Yorkshire Ripper. That was a massive red flag for the police. In court, James spoke about killing Jim Atfield, saying it took two to three minutes. I heard voices laughing and said the voices made him really strong and fast. He also said the voices said, do it or it will be you. They said he had committed sins. I thought it was the right thing. I was getting rid of the sinners. When talking about killing Nahid Almania, he said, They said I needed another sacrifice. I went into the rage. She was a sinner. They were telling me she was a sinner and I had to get rid of them. Them being the voices he needed to stop the voices telling him to kill people. There were four court psychiatrists who were assessing him, who were watching him, who were trying to see if his diminished responsibility claim was true or not. And Dr Philip Joseph, who was one of the four, told the court that the claims were like something you might see in a horror film and described the hallucinations as extremely unconvincing. He also said every time he's talking about voices, he's doing it to distance himself from what he's done. In James's home, when they were searching it, they also found Google searches for manslaughter by diminished responsibility, making the court believe that he had researched this, he had tried to work out if this would work for him, if he could make it work for him, and also perpetuated the idea that he was fine, he knew what he was doing and was trying to get away with it and get a lesser sentence. As I said, there were four psychiatrists who actually testified against him and they all agreed that James suffered from an autism spectrum disorder but no other issues. So the, the voices, the hallucinations, weren't real. They didn't exist. And his diminished responsibility plea was dismissed. On the 22nd of April 2016, more than two years after James Atfield's murder, 17-year-old James Fairweather was found unanimously guilty by the jury and was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 27 years 
meaning he will be 44 if he is released after those 27 years. As he was sentenced, he reportedly mouthed, I don't give a shit, and gave a thumbs up to his mum and dad. If that isn't the most horrific thing you've ever heard, you've just been found guilty of horrifically murdering two completely innocent people. These were not you know, pre-planned attacks. These were not, this is a person that I know and I'm going to kill them because I'm angry with them, which also isn't okay. But he was, he wanted to kill someone and those people were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And all he had to say was, I don't give a shit, as he was given two life sentences with a minimum of 27 years. That's his entire youth that he's lost because... He made some bad decisions and they were the worst decisions and they hurt two families. Two families lost their son and their daughter for no reason. Those people had done nothing wrong. And James Atfield was a father of five. His five children were about to be reunited with their dad as he had rehabilitated himself after a horrific car crash with, which left him in a coma and his life was taken away, their dad was taken away and James Fairweather didn't give a shit I really struggle to work out why someone would do something like that I struggle with people who kill anyone but if it's someone they know, if it's someone they have you know, a grudge against, a problem with, at least there's a motive. Not that that makes it okay but you know why they did it no matter how misjudged. But with this, there's no motive except a fascination and an idolisation of serial killers. I don't understand, and I don't think many of us ever will. And James Atfield's mother, throughout the trial, she lost her job. Her family were put into emergency homes because they couldn't afford to live in their house so not only have they lost their son in a horrific way in a publicized way they lost their home they lost their lives they lost everything because of this 15 year old boy who decided that he needed to kill and that is one of the saddest things I think I've ever heard and Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City Go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda You never have to miss a trip ever again So download the Priceline app today your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
there there aren't any words that I can ever say that would make something like that better. But the one thing is that Nahid Almania and James Atfield will never be forgotten by the town of Colchester, by most of Essex, I'm sure, and by a lot of people around the country. And that is the only comfort that I can give. So yeah, that's the end of that case. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, if enjoyed is the right word. Um, I don't usually do crime, I'm more of a makeup person. <laughs> so to be asked to do this was a real honour and I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so thank you to Joshua Miles, he's he's a great lad. Um, and yeah, I hope you learnt a lot if you didn't know about this case before and I hope you, hope you learnt a little bit more if you did. And yeah, thank you for watching. Thank you all so much for watching this final Smaller Creator guest episode in my Curious Case True Crime series. That is a mouthful. I really hoped you enjoyed today's creator. Be sure to jump over to Cicely's Instagram and give her some support and love. She definitely deserves it for today's case. If you're new here, I usually upload two videos a week, one on Wednesdays, which is lighthearted, and then one on Sundays, which is this kind of true crime video. The final guest video will be coming out tomorrow and it has a super special secret feature guest that will be on the episode so be sure to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified as soon as that video goes live. I'm so excited for all of you to see tomorrow's video so yeah <laughs> uh, uh, with all that being said I'll see you tomorrow in the next video.